Welcome back to the Joshua Shaw audio experience. Firstly, thank you for giving me a bit of your attention. I'm honored you trusted me with it, and I promise to return the favor by giving you a ton of edutainment value back. I want to welcome you back to another episode of what I've branded Pivotal. Since these interview style segments tackle impactful CPG industry topics and lessons from the business leaders that live it every day. So it's not kind of every day that I get to talk to one of my childhood TV idols. To be honest, I've been having a lot of these kind of like pinch me, is this my real life type moments lately. For any boy growing up in the early 90s, you were absolutely watching American Gladiators. My guest on this episode is Cyclone from that hit show, but it's what Barry Turner did after he was injured on American Gladiators that interests me as an adult. Barry Turner went on to become the co-founder of the massively successful health and wellness snacking brand, Lenny and Larry's. Barry and I talk about category creation challenges three decades ago and what today's CPG entrepreneurs can learn from that early phase. Barry also shares his Steve Jobs kind of comeback story and how his time off from Lenny and Larry's created a serendipitous moment with another massive health and wellness snacking brand. These are just a few of the fascinating stories and topics discussed in this episode. But before we get started, I did want to give a quick shout out to the sponsor of today's content, Superior Snacks. As a trusted strategy consultant within the functional CPG categories, I've worked with numerous functional snacking contract manufacturers throughout the last decade. What I've always loved most about Superior Snacks is their willingness and ability to match the highest inventiveness level of the industry's most forward-looking entrepreneurs. From brownies to cookies to muffins and kind of anything in between, Superior Snacks can provide exceptional products to meet your desired nutritional standards without compromising taste. If you're interested in learning more about how Superior Snacks can help you take your functional food product development ideas to the next level, head over to superior-snacks.com or reach out to me directly and I'll connect you with the master baker himself. But without further delay, here is my recent conversation with the co-founder of Lenny and Larry's, Barry Turner. So I have to say, Barry, I'm, I'm like super pumped, uh, probably more pumped than the way you used to look during the American Gladiators era uh, to, to have you uh, as a guest on these pivotal segments. And just first off, like, thank you, Barry, for, for joining me. I know that uh, your time's super valuable. So for you to be giving me some of that and, and a ton of insights to my community, it's like super excited for that aspect of it. Josh, listen, I'm excited to be here. And like I say, you, you know this, I, I'm a fan of yours. I'm not just saying that. I think you um, I think you have some of the best content out there. And for people who aren't following you uh, and actually subscribing to your YouTube channel, I think people are missing it. Uh, and that's just not to get, you know, it's not to become a, a good friend and get on your good side and blow smoke. Um, no, you're legit, buddy. And I say, like I said, I'm just, uh, it's just, it's an honor for me to, to be here speaking with you. And like I said, I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah, super humbling, super. I, I agree. I think my content's a hidden gem. I always say like YouTube, like <laughs> get me in front of more people. What are you doing? I don't, I don't understand. But, you know, and I think over the years, like I've told you, and I think I've, I've not been shy to say like, I'm a big fan of uh, Lenny and Larry's, like the complete cookies. Like, I mean, I, I would eat those things all the time. I think I've told you so many times when you guys launch new flavors and everything, like how I've loved the product, all the other different variants and things like that. And Above and beyond that, super fascinated with 
the almost three decades that the business has been around and just your life as a whole. I mean, the more that I kind of did some background and stuff, the more that I was like intrigued with all the different things that I kind of started to learn. But um, before we get into like Lenny and Larry's specific stuff, I want to kind of get back to even like, I guess, the you know, pre-American Gladiators days of like, you know, entrepreneurship and, and ask you like, has that been in your blood like since the beginning? Like, were there times when you were a kid that was like you were an instant kind of you brick back, you go that I was an entrepreneur even during those days? Yeah, 100%. I grew up in the South, grew up in North Carolina, uh, huge Tar Heel. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it uh, 100% it was. It was from pulling a wagon around the neighborhood, picking up bottles out of ditches and taking them and cashing them in so I could get candy, right? Um, I think that's kind of where it started. Uh, raking leaves, you know, cutting someone's grass just for, for anything, washing someone's car. Yeah, it was always something about to, to make money because, you know, when you grow up, uh, when you grow up uh, without, you grow up poor, um, your know, parents weren't just giving you allowances. They had no money to give you allowances for. So you had to go create whatever it was. And so I think I think that was uh, I think that was the biggest thing uh, for me is just kind of my, my jump start. And I do believe that being an entrepreneur, I, I just believe it's um, I, I, I don't believe it's learned. That, that's, that's just me. Uh, and, and people could say I'm wrong, whatever, but it's okay. Um, I just, I think it's instinctual. I, I really do. I tend to agree with you. And, and I thought about this when I was in college, the, I think the final year, or maybe when I was in grad school, the Kent state university, where I went, they started a entrepreneurial track for like that. You can get a degree in entrepreneurship. And I thought, how do you teach somebody to be an entrepreneur? I think that that to me is like, you know, visceral, innate, like I could think, you know, back similar stories in my mind is like, I was all about the lemonade stands. I was all about cutting grass. I was all about, you know, shoveling the snow from the driveways. I was um, doing anything I could to to get money for what I wanted to to purchase. And I can't think about like that, that I would have learned that later in life. Like yeah. that was something that was just baked into me as a person. Like, cause I know a lot of my friends, they weren't not doing those things, but like that just became so natural that like, okay, it's a, you know, Saturday afternoon and it seems pretty warm and I live on a pretty busy street. So like, why don't I fire up and do some Kool-Aid and some lemonade yeah. and see if yeah. I can sell yep. you know, some stuff. Like that just seemed like so natural that then after that I was counting the money and I was like, Oh, how do I buy more to so do like the whole thing was just at a young age, like even probably before you were taught some of that stuff in, in school, I was already like putting it into action. Um, so I totally agree with you in terms of, of, of that, because I, I think it's, it's odd to, to think that it can be learned. Um, but maybe we're wrong. I don't know, but I just, my opinion. And, and, and uh, like I said, and I, I, I don't think we are wrong, but um, it's funny the, uh, in, in, uh, and we'll, we'll touch on these things, but in 2001, when I uh, sold my company, um, I was like, what do I do then? Right. And um, so I actually applied at the uh, Pepperdine Grazia Dio business school. I'm like, you know, I, I just wanted, I wanted to further my education and I got accepted. Um, and uh, I remember the very first day of like an orientation, the guy says, going to teach you guys how to become entrepreneurs and that was the last day i went uh <laughs> as you I already am like what like what you were saying it's like how do you how do you teach me to become an entrepreneur um i just think it's i think it's i think it's just endless i really do now i mentioned a few times the american gladiator uh, point and, and i don't think that i could breeze over that because for me as a growing up in the 90s like that was a super important show for me like i I watched it every week. It was it was something. Even when they came out with the less than stellar remakes of it uh, later on, I, I still still watched it because it was 
it, it was like you guys are like superheroes. Yeah. Um, and I think it was one of those shows that made an impact in a lot of you know males. I don't know if females watch it too, but I know as a, as a male young young boy, I, I watched that and thinking like, okay. Like that might've been my earliest memory of like, oh, we like, I want to do health and well. And I want to like work out. I want to like get like these guys. That's something I did. So want to hear like a little bit of like what got you into sure. to, to that? Well, the, uh, it kind of started just in my background. Uh, and uh, we, we, I'll touch on that later if you want to, but the uh, just around fitness and wellness and being an athlete and from, you know, being a bouncer to a bodybuilder to a pro wrestler to, uh, it was, it was kind of like that natural progression. Um, I guess I'm a, I guess I'm a bit of a renaissance man. Um, and then moving to California and um, just coming out here just because I wanted to live in California because of the weather and uh, moved out from Atlanta, Georgia. So they had a, um, a, I was training at Gold's Gym in Venice. Uh, I was a big dude. I was probably 240 pounds, hair down to my waist. Um, and the gladi- I'd, I'd done some like modeling and a little bit of acting and stuff. I'm not a good actor. I don't even like to be on camera. So this is kind of rare for me too. But um uh, I got some bit parts just because of how I because of how I looked, right? And so I found out the American Gladiators were having an open casting call, so I just went and uh, and I went with the intention of becoming the next American Gladiator, and that's and that's a true story. There were over 300 people lined up. It was as far as you could see around the building, uh, just a line of people. I was the only one dressed like I was dressed. I looked like American Gladiator, had American flag bandana, had the long hair. I, I looked different. It just looked different. And uh, and I didn't talk to anyone. I just like uh, when I when I get into these types of things where it's a competition, it's me versus you. I'm sorry, I'm not your friend. I want to destroy you. And so I had blinders on. I didn't talk to anyone in line. Didn't want to make friends. I went in there and I just boom, boom, boom. I started doing my events and uh, they narrowed it down to 10 people that very first day. And I was one of the 10. Now, I'm just a guy from Hickory, North Carolina. And now I got a you know, 10% shot of uh, getting on the hottest show on TV. And it was, it was the first true reality TV show. <laughs> and like you, I watched it. I was a little bit older as I watched it, but Josh, my whole life has always been, if I saw something, I would go like this and I would look at it and I'd go, yeah, I can do that. That was just always my mentality. Uh, I didn't care what it was. I'd say I can do it. And people say, well, how do you know? I go, because I just, I just know. And so we narrowed it down to 10 people and then they um, go through some uh, some eliminations, go up against each other in certain things. Now we're down to three people and I'm one of the three. Okay, now my heart's racing a little bit. I'm like, holy shit, I'm about to get on, pardon my French. I'm about to get on this, uh, the hottest show on TV. And it was. And so it came down to, and then they um, they, they stopped. There was no more, no more communication. And well, the casting director had quit. Hmm. And this is, this is pre-internet. Um, so I couldn't send an email to the person. So I had these, I had I'd done a photo shoot a while back. Had had this big eight by ten done with like I've got this you know chains around me and ripped shirt. I'm standing on top of like a burnt car in downtown L.A. No kidding, and I'm just like this. And so I took this photo and I just hand wrote a message to the new casting director, and just told about ex- exactly what I'd gone through. And at the end of it, I put in capital letters, true story. I am the next American Gladiator. Call me, and they called me. So now I got to go up against one more person. It's just some dude. I remember all he said is this guy was a, they said Olympic skier or something. It's all I heard. And he was really tall. He had long blonde hair and I didn't care. And I beat him like a rag doll in front of all these, in front of all the executives at this studio. Smoked him in uh, joust. I, I crushed him in Powerball. I smoked him in 240s and I ran over to these executives and I jumped up and I pumped my fist. And I just said, I go, who's your gladiator? 
And that was it. It was over. And so about an hour and a half later, I got the call. And that, so it was, it was more, the highlight was more being selected on the show than it actually was performing. And then I had a great time and the people on the show were awesome. But it was just, it was my journey, buddy. I, it was just like, you know, I was 32 years old at the time. So that was my journey. And I was now on the hottest show on TV, just a guy from small town, Hickory, North Carolina. So uh, it was a, it was just my biggest accomplishment in my life at that time. You, know, you probably can't stop that story without saying like, I mean, it was, it was kind of short lived, um, unfortunately, because you got an injury, I think. Um, bicep tendon, yeah. That was the, the height. And then you have this kind of thing that hits you down. And yeah. then I, you know, I think about, I don't know how long it was between that injury and then you guys sitting down and maybe you guys were at the, what, Firehouse Cafe or whatever that's well, like, well, right? So we, used, we used to eat there a lot, but we ate at a, <laughs> a coffee roaster cafe in the marina, Johnny's Coffee Roaster. It was about a yeah, year. Was it was probably about a year and a half from my injury. Okay. Yeah. Because I was think I was thinking that that um, that cafe that's like right by that Venice uh, Gold. Oh, yeah. I wonder how, wonder how many businesses in the nutritional side got started yeah. by oh, yeah. just sitting yeah. there with a few. Of the we, we we all ate at Firehouse. Like if, <laughs> if you had a break, if you were if you're a personal trainer and you would say, hey, I got a couple of hours, I'm gonna go to Firehouse and get some you know egg whites and chicken breasts and sweet <laughs> potatoes, right? It's just what we did. Um, well, you guys, I mean, you guys sat down, you guys were at a coffee shop. Maybe you guys were having a muffin or maybe you weren't, yeah, um, yeah. but you know, you were thinking about something at the time and this is the, what, maybe 93. 93. Um, yeah, a, yeah. Like, so I wasn't a consumer of these products at the time, but uh, being a, a student of this industry for as long as I have, I know that like those things didn't exist that you guys were creating protein right. added baked goods. Right. Uh, were not a thing. Uh, nope. that, they weren't like today where every single thing has been reimagined yeah. in this better for you or functional yeah. way. Back then, yeah. you know, you had maybe a, a maybe a protein bar or two that yeah. were not good, tasted like chalk. Um, yeah, you, had, you, had, you had metrics. Uh, you had, um, there's a bar, bar called um, Steel Bar um, or something like that. And uh, and we ate them. Uh, but Josh, I always joke and say, back then, you, you would eat your shoe if you thought it had protein <laughs> in it. So these these bars, uh, Metrics used to give me a bunch of free stuff, and I, I used to I used to use the product, and uh, I liked it. It was uh, it was palatable. Let's just say that uh, it's come a long way, uh, where everything now tastes like a candy bar. Uh, but yeah, we were um, we were the we were the first. Um, and uh, and true story, yeah, we were we were sitting there having breakfast in, in the marina, uh, chicken breast, egg whites on the plate, and we did have a muffin sitting on the table, and um, we were going to share the muffin with a cup of coffee. That was going to be our treat. And um, I looked at, uh, I just pointed, pointed to the chicken breast and the egg whites, and I said, why can't we put the protein in that muffin? And that was it. And, and most people, if, you know, if someone else had said that, would they have even taken the initiative or taken the action to actually go do something? Probably not. Um, but we started, we founded our company that day. We, uh, we did a DBA. We, we opened up a bank account. We bought muffin mix and protein powder. We were baking muffins within a few hours. That's how, that's how much we thought this was going to be massive. But you, what you end up doing is you end up trying to make all these different products rather than focusing on a hero, right? Find the one that wins. Uh, we were the first person, first people to do anything. We did high protein granola. We did high protein popcorn. Uh, this is in the early nineties now. Uh, muffins, uh, brownies, cookies, uh, cheesecake. I mean, in anything you can think of, scones, everything, cinnamon rolls, high protein, everything. And uh, it was kind of scattered, right? We didn't have, we weren't, we were opening up some small accounts, but we were always developing products rather than just like, you know, honing in on what was going to be our success. 
Yeah, there's two things that was kind of coming to my mind where you're talking was one, I think timing has a lot to do with some of these innovations, you know, being that they were so ahead of their time, so forward looking that there wasn't, you know, a proper market that even if you were, you know, the best marketers in the world or you were the best salesman in the world, like there just wasn't enough of customers that were demanding those things at the time for all yep. those unique things. They were still trying to grasp these bars or grasp, yep. you know, maybe some other format where you had so many of these unique things that just didn't exist yeah. in the world. And then secondly, like you were mentioning about like focus is that, you know, during that time, because you were creating so many new things that didn't exist, it was probably exciting. But nowadays you have to go all in on one of those things that, that win, like you just can't launch 10 things that, you know, start, especially right. when they're all category creators that you guys did. I mean, just yeah. the amount of time it takes to build out the category, oh, yeah. um, you know, so it's it's interesting to hear that. And I think I'd heard somewhere that it took you maybe only two weeks from like that conversation to like actually getting the product to be on shelf somewhere. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a good buddy of mine that I think you know as well, um, Ryan Buckeye that does oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Fit Butters. Yeah. And like he had that idea and they were messing around in their kitchen creating these like high protein flavored kind of nut butters. And then two weeks later, they had it out to market and it's like unheard of yeah. to have somebody go that quick yeah. and get something from you know ideation to like proof of concept yeah. Yeah. and selling yeah Ryan, ryan's a machine and i was uh, when i heard that story as well I was, I was really i was really proud of him because obviously that made me think of myself right um but i think you just, sometimes you just you just do it and uh because otherwise the longer something goes you can talk yourself out of doing things and um so we yeah we uh we went to i think our first account our first account was a little as a matter of fact was the little coffee shop that we uh we, we dreamed of our idea then it was like gold's gem in venice uh um air one market uh, before it became what it is today yeah. um so in rainbow acres and all these like these local stores but everyone was like this we'd present it and they would go i don't get it but i'll give you a shot right <laughs> And that's what it was. So we literally to the point where we would say, let's just put it on consignment. We'll give you a dozen of these things, right? If they don't sell, you know, you don't have to pay us. But we said, but we have to be by the register. That was always our thing was being by the register. So if you go to places now and you always see our cookies, a lot of times they're right by the register because it's such a great impulse item. And uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of how it started. And uh, but buddy, it was a chore. And um, someone asked me one time, what did um, just the uh, I don't want to say it was scattered, but just the. Um, um, it, it cost us a lot of time, just uh, the way we were kind of uh, positioned at the time, right? Creating a category uh, was very difficult, pre-internet, um, just kind of really not having a, a strategy, knowing that we were making great products and, and hoping that that crazy logo would, uh, would catch on one day, right? It's, it's going through multiple iterations. But yeah, it, it, was, it was a fun time. I wouldn't trade it for anything um, because it was, just, it was just part of my journey. Um, and it, you know, it was part of my, uh, we'll say my education because now I have a, a PhD in CPG. So, uh, so I've been doing this for, uh, for a lot of years. Through, I think, 93 up to when you had your first kind of exit of the business in, in 2001, was there a consistent product that was, was it the muffins that lived throughout that whole time or was there a number of different products? We had a lot of private label also. Coffee bean and tea leaf was a huge account for us. Um, so our products were getting out there locally around the, a lot of like the, the Whole Foods and things in our area. But we were also shipping, we had a high protein popcorn, caramel popcorn, we were shipping to all the Whole Foods around the country. Uh, we created this, this, this business. 
And uh, but the majority of it, we didn't we didn't really have a we still didn't have what we'll call a a hero or a home run. Um, so I still think it kind of left the chance. So the coffee bean and tea leaf actually gave us an opportunity. So we started private labeling a lot of the products for them, making products for them. But yet we always had our products on shelf too. So we were able, able to brand a little bit through coffee bean. Now I want to talk about an uh, interesting story during the time when you had your kind of like quote unquote off time when you when you you know left the business after that first kind of exit and you stumbled into a software company. Yeah. Um, and that maybe wouldn't necessarily be all that important in your story if it wasn't for some interesting people that also worked there. Yeah. So like yeah. talk about that story. Cause I like when I heard it, I don't remember where I heard it and yeah. how long ago I heard it. But when I did, I was like, that is one of the most interesting serendipitous moments ever. Yeah. I, I, when I sold it, uh, so first time in 01 and I, uh, I just went out and kind of started buying, started buying real estate. Now I, did, I didn't make like generational money and it was, you know, it was a little bit life-changing money, yes, but it wasn't wasn't like I could retire, right? So, uh, but I took that money and parlayed it into um, some real estate ventures. So, I started flipping a lot of properties in Arizona, and um, at the height of the the real estate market, and I got out at the at the peak of it um, because I actually you know was one of the people who actually predicted the uh, the crash. Uh, I was dabbling in mortgages also, and I could see what was happening in the marketplace. And I came home one day and told my wife, I said, "There's going to be a bloodbath in the real estate market." And she said, let's sell everything. I said, it's already underway. So I sold everything and the market just, just crashed. Uh, and had I not been dabbling in mortgages, maybe I wouldn't have seen what was happening. Um, so from there, I met one of my one of my best friends, Michael Venny. Um, and uh, Michael said, I want to introduce you to these guys. Um, we have the software company. Um, they really want to meet you. They know your story, that kind of thing. So I meet them and it turned out it was uh, Ron Penna and Mike Osborne who became Quest Nutrition. We had a great relationship. It was uh, it was it was just kind of fun, and um, they they just said, "Well, what are you doing right now?" I said, "Not much." They said, "Come to work with us," and I said, "Okay, what would I do?" And I said, "Whatever." So anyway, we messed around a little bit in the software business, and um, and they liked my skill set. So they asked me one day, said, "Hey, we'd like to talk to you about you know running our company, becoming president of our company." And so always say, "Be careful when you when somebody says, what do you need to to do this?'" and you throw out a number, always ne next time always say higher than what you think, right? So they said, done, we want you. Um, so we worked together for a while. But then I had the opportunity to to buy half of my company back and uh, the, towards the end of about 2006. Um, Ron and Mike loved what I was about to go into. Now, software is kind of boring and we were, we were all pretty successful at it. We created a really cool brand called Awareness Technologies. And, but they, I think they really thrived because they were very much into health and fitness also. And so I think they really, they wanted to be a part of what I was doing too. And we tried for a while to bring them in as investors and things in my brand or whatever, but it just, Ron and I are, uh, and Ron, Ron's a great guy. And, uh, but it would just been two alpha male dogs, you know, like this. So, um, so decided not to, not to partner with them. And so they go out with their, with their knowledge of, you know, uh, being able to market online and you know, direct consumer. Uh, they created uh, Quest Nutrition. Yeah, it, it's interesting because they like either either one of those forks in the road. Mm -hmm. You know, either they they join with you mm -hmm. on your comeback, or yep. they go and do their own thing. Yeah, like it's both of those hands were winning hands. You know what I mean? One, <laughs> well, listen, one one hundred percent, I agree with you. Um, and uh, what I love about him is like a, Ron is one of the Ron's one of the smartest guys I've ever I've ever met in my life. He literally is. He's a, he's a he's a freaking genius. Um, but um, and I, I agree with you 100 percent. I think I think had we had had I partnered with them, but I, I just didn't have a, a good enough grasp of where I was when I when I came back to allow just to have that outside voice. I really wanted it to be my show. 
uh, even though I had a partner, he was also he was a good partner, but he he let me kind of do my thing, right? And um, he knew he knew I want I just wanted to, I wanted to build this thing, and and uh, and he was able to uh, kind of not not take a back seat, but to love, just to give me the reins to go do what I needed to do. And I want to dig in a little bit more on this kind of Steve Jobs comeback moment um, because I think that you know that one's obviously well chronicled, but yours maybe is not, and want to get maybe into your mind a little bit. I know you said you wanted to run your own show, but like how motivated were you after you know you left and then six years later you come back and the company was probably not exactly where you thought it should be or where you wanted it to be. Like how motivated were you to like prove any doubters kind of wrong during that period? Um, I, I don't know. Um, it, it's funny. Uh, I, I don't know if I was really set on just like proving people wrong. Um, I never felt I was competing against anyone but myself. Yet, I mean, maybe there's part of that, Josh, because I think a lot of people, uh, when they first saw the the brand and they they laughed at it and the logo, it's stupid, it's hokey, it's goofy, it's never gonna never nobody's ever gonna buy a product that has that logo on it. And and I'll and maybe there's part of that, <laughs> you know, I'll show you type of thing. But uh, for the most part, it was just it was just me. Uh, just having a new lease on life and being able to go back into basically it's like it's like um I, I was able to like get it back and it was still an infant right they they hadn't messed it up or anything but they hadn't grown it and done anything with it either right yeah. so I, I felt like it was a bit on life support that it, there really was no brand there was no identity it was still just more like a private label business that was just that basically needed some um, uh, decent income but um so yeah so when i came back we i think the first year based off of what they did the year prior we tripled it within the first 11 months and uh, and then just then there that, that started that journey of like you know growing every year because i i think setting the tone maybe for or setting the stage i guess for people that maybe are not too aware of the market at you know late 2000s it, it wasn't all that much more mature than when you started obviously there was a lot maybe say a lot in relative terms, but if you compare it to today, there was not very many competitors still doing right. bars or any other kind of formats. And you talked about all that growth, but you still were super innovative at mm -hmm. that time because at the time you guys came out, I think with the muscle brownie, uh, brownie which yeah. was, you know, you guys could have went with a bar. You guys yep. could have went with something that yep. was more relatable, but yep. you went with something that was again, not really seen out in the market um, right. it took another shot at it which i think could have been risky at the yeah. time but obviously pulled yeah you know, made, made the right decision yeah well it's funny you're you're 100 right there and uh, i wanted to create something that was like completely different there were bars starting to hit the market uh and you know and so coming up with a to be the, really the first high protein brownie uh was um it, it still would take the place of a protein bar we were hoping um, we were so set on this being a success. We ordered, uh, we ordered 72,000 brownies. I'm not kidding you. We had 36,000 each flavor. We had multiple pallets sitting in the warehouse and we had no accounts. And we said, now let's go sell them. And we went right over to Whole Foods regional office, uh, in the Valley here in LA. And I'm sitting there in the lobby. We had no appointment, shorts, t-shirt, true story. Uh, and the buyer walks in. And she looked at me and she goes, I remember you. And I said, I remember you. And she said, what do you have? I go, we got these new high protein brownies. They're all natural to this, whatever. She goes, I love them. Let's put them in. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, that's awesome. So we obviously we had a great, great lunch that day and we just, and it just started. Just, uh, we sold out like so quickly. GNC took them, Bottom Shop took them, everybody took them. And, um, well, we always had this little 
crazy little cookie that was in had a little um, uh, cardboard uh, thing behind it had all of our mm -hmm. nutritionals and we had a label and so that cookie was always locally it was everywhere it was in little baskets by registers and the cookie just it was it was always selling it was just always so consistent right um, and, and that yeah you know, as you know that became that, that became our hero when did you guys like officially I guess call it the complete cookie was that in... it, was, it was always called the complete cookie um, I, I thought I still think it's one of the best product names uh, out there uh, because of the word complete. Uh, just like I think Balance Bar was always one of the better name, product names out there, period, just because it was, I just thought it was, I thought it was a perfect name, right? And um, so complete just kind of, it completed everything. Um, so um, in 2000, it really started catching fire, we'll say maybe around 11, 12, we started getting more and more accounts. And so one day, Vitamin Shop said, you know, if you guys could get a better shelf life, we think, and this was their term, you guys can become a, a box business. In other words, they'll buy you by the boxes. And the light bulb just went off, and I said, so now I was on a mission to actually find the right uh, foil, the right, the right packaging. But it, that also took, that now I had to have a design for the package as well. So it was no longer a label. So now I had a bigger footprint. Now I could say more things that I wanted to say. And, um, and I remember uh, when we, um, we took it out of the clear wrapper and put it into the film. I remember my, uh, my business partner's son, Tony, said, he goes, if you do this, he said, we, could, we literally could go out of business. Hmm. I said, or I said, we could be jumping up and down celebrating. I said, I, said, I think it's going to be the latter. And, uh, and it was. Uh, and then once, once that started, we got the shelf life and it was just, it was all bets were off. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys saw, you know, immense growth through the early 2010s into the mid 2010s and, you know, even into to the latter parts of the 2010s. And I wanted to talk about something that you know happened that maybe let's say stunted the growth a little bit, but less definitely reset you guys a mm -hmm. little bit in terms of strategy, you know, product, all those types of things. And that was from like a class action lawsuit that yeah. showed up, I think, I don't know if it was 17 or 18, but it was. It um, actually, that uh, happened around six, 2016. You know, and I think that anytime, you know, something public like that happens mm -hmm. to a high flyer brand, there's a lot of them, they, they struggle. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, like they, you never hear from them again or something like that. And though I think you guys took a hit, you or guys were able to, in a way, if we're talking about, you know, analogy, maybe with an airplane, like, you know, mm -hmm. the thing's diving, you guys were able to pull it up, yeah. like, you know, yep. and, it, and it now has, you know, become a, a bigger business and, and everything. But I think I'm interested to hear kind of how you guys approach that or just, you know, how you kind of guys got through. And I don't know if you could share details or not, but I think that there's going to come a time, any CPG entrepreneur that's going to come and have be faced with this, if yep. it's a product thing, yep. or if it's a, um, you know, maybe they, they make the wrong comment online or whatever it is. Like there's going to be a time where they're going to hit this uh, outward uh, public facing challenge that they're going to have to overcome. And, and I don't know if there's a lot of people that can speak to it to the level that you can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, uh, we'll just call them haters out there. People want to destroy brands or, or people who are having some success. It's just, it's just, it's just uh, human nature to want to tear people down. Quest went through it. They had their lawsuits. Uh, Cliff Bar went through it. Um, every, everyone goes through it. Ours was as frivolous as it gets, um, but um, I wanted to fight. 
is what I wanted to do. I literally told my attorney, I said, I go, put me on TV. TV. I said, let me go on CNBC, Fox. I said, I said, someone has to, because this was at the time, it was just lawsuit galore, right? It was, it was just happening. People were suing everybody for everything, right? And uh, and I wanted to be, I wanted to, I wanted to stop it. And I wanted to be the face of it. But even though my attorney, he let me scream and rant or whatever, he just said, he goes, it's not, it, it's not going to help us is what he kept saying. Well, the funny thing, uh, Josh, is what 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 these ambulance chasing attorneys do now. If we had tort reform, things like that, if we had people who could actually, if you were responsible, you know, winner take all type mentality, you would see lawsuits drop by probably ninety percent. But it, it costs them nothing because they 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 find they find some sucker out there uh, who will who will put their name to it. But I understand about class actions. It has nothing to do with the person that's attached to it. They they they're clueless, right? They're just a name. And uh, and now the now the, these law firms they go out and they try to go destroy brands. Basically, they're just like Jesse Jackson, the Rainbow Coalition. They extort money from people, just like just like some of these uh, recent groups. I won't I won't say their their initials. Um, all they did was uh, do things to extort money from people because no one wanted to be called something, so they said we'll give you money to to leave us alone. This is really what we went through. But the telltale sign was when when this uh, ambulance chasing attorney uh, from Chicago. When he heard what our revenue was at the time he was trying to start this lawsuit, he, he, he goes, he responds with, wow, I thought you guys were bigger. He thought we were a bigger company. He thought we were taking that. He was going to take down a brand who was doing $100 million in revenue who would just cough up $5 million, and then they would just go away. Uh, and we weren't, we weren't close to $100 million in revenue at that time to start it. So it must have been like 2014, 2015, around that range. It just goes to show you, like, we, we fought it. Um, and then when we, um, we ended up, and they were questioning uh, the protein, and really what they were saying was they, they said the protein content first. And then we uh, we had our attorney take go pull all of our cookies off shelves and he sent them to a third party lab and all of our cookies came back between 16 and 19 grams of protein, even though we claimed 16. So then they said, oh, it wasn't that. Now they they re-upped it and they wanted to sue us for the quality of the protein, a PD cast test. So it just goes to show you that they were just fishing, fishing, fishing. We ended up paying more to our attorney to represent us than we ever did to the stupid class action lawsuit thing. And a lot of and, and the majority of the money went to some sort of fund that uh, was donated to some sort of charities. That's really what it came down to. This attorney, I don't they didn't I don't think they got anything. So we ended up donating money to some sort of charity. Um, so most of these things are the the words all natural was another one when people were using all natural. That was a huge one. Um, we had a couple of little small ones there. You, had, you pay people to go away. And then there was one, it was funny, there was one, um, we, have a, we have a cookie called a white chocolate macadamia cookie. And I was designing, helping our, uh, our graphic designer change the words to white chocolatey because I knew, I knew it was going to be the next lawsuit. And right before we printed our film to white chocolatey, we got hit with one from some random person out of Florida um, suing us because we call it white chocolate. It's the world we live in, right? It's, it's like something from nothing. And um, so pe people just want people just want to destroy. They just want to destroy um, success. So less, lesson for entrepreneurs is, you know, be ready that people are going to try to tear you down. Sure. Have, a, have a little bit of a, a slush fund available. Uh, for have, have, a, have a good attorney. You don't need the most expensive one like we had. Um, Jesus Christ, I couldn't, I couldn't I'd never forget his bill. Um, but um, they, the attorneys end up making all the money. These class actions lawsuits are, are an absolute joke. One other area that I think you're, you would have a pretty unique perspective on is, you know, this post-acquisition, you know, what do you do next? Um, I consult with a ton of, you know, CPG entrepreneurs. Some of them 
extremely young um, that are in a rush to get their business sold. And something that I always bring up when we're talking about that is, okay, but well, what do you do next? Do you yeah. have a passion? Do you have something that you are going to do next? Because yeah, there might be a, a little bit of a period of time where they are going to hire you on and you maybe run the company for a little bit of time or whatever that is, but far and away, after you sell that business, your life changes. And I don't know if a lot of people think about that when they sell their business. They just think, I want this liquidity event. And that's all I'm thinking about. But then if you're thinking, if you're working every day and this is your baby and you every, you wake up every morning and you're excited to attack those mm -hmm. problems or, or, or go after every opportunity, and then the next day morning you wake up and you go, well, now what do I do? Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, if you have a, a perspective on that and like any advice for anybody that maybe is listening to this and like trying to rush through all of that. Buddy, you, you, you're, listen, I, I, I love what you just said. And, and that was it. And, uh, and that was my biggest fear of selling my company to, to say, now, what about me? What do I do? Right. Um, I loved running my business. I loved running my brand. I love being my brand. Um, I didn't want to sell. Um, the, uh, it comes down to, you know, you put it out there. It's like you have you have everyone beating down your door, and as we always say, you get one chance to be the pretty girl at the dance, and everybody was courting us and wanting our wanting our, our crazy little brand, or whatever. Um, but we were, Josh, we were we were so profitable, and we were debt free. We had no investors. And like Eric Huberman said, he goes, "Holy crap!" He goes, "You he goes are turning off that that kind of money," and he goes, "He goes, yeah." It's like you almost kind of say, "Why did we sell?" And um, and it's something you know, I guess they made they made an offer that we couldn't refuse. I guess we'll call it that, right? Um, but if your if your whole goal is just to sell and make a bunch of money, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be pretty empty. You're going to be pretty hollow. Uh, I, I think it's going to happen to everyone uh, because I never understood about people when you meet people now. They're they're doing something, but they always want to be doing something else, hmm. right? And uh, I never understood that. And um, so I'm like, uh, yeah, it's okay to have goals and things like this, whatever, but you're, you're building a brand so, so you can hurry up and sell that brand so you can go do, so you can go do what, right? And why is, it, why is it you have to have an exit strategy? Why is that part of it? It's just, because of the, it's just because of the world we live in today and how the CPG world works, right? What's the exit strategy? If I invest in this brand, what's the exit strategy? So you can kind of back it up a little bit. I think the problem lies in investing with investors. Now the founders have a responsibility to the investors to make this profitable and give this person a really good ROI ASAP, right? And uh, and I don't think that's I don't think that's a strategy for success. I'd like to see people actually bootstrap and hustle. And people say, oh, you know, money's always an issue. Like I need to raise money. I need to raise money. Whatever. Exhaust all your your resources and all your means, right? Before you go out and raise money and, and give that equity away, especially when you're raising it at such an early stage, equity is very expensive to give away, especially when you do it like right up front. Jesus Christ! I mean, literally, sell your car, get a get a home equity line of credit, uh, just well, wh whatever it takes. Get a second job, do, work a job while you're running your company. It's it's okay. I did it. I did it. Uh, you should train clients and do it. You just you be a personal trainer, and uh, in between that, my wife and I would. You know, we would swap off with uh, with my sons. Like she would watch him, I'd watch him. I'd go to the gym, train clients, we'd go to the bakery and make muffins, right? Come back and you know, swap off. Um, I don't. I think the. Uh, I I think there's less of that these days. I think a lot of people spend a lot of money in uh, developing these really beautiful decks to uh, to go raise a bunch of money.
I love to see when when entrepreneurs are all in. Um, kind of what you were saying about when you guys launched the Muscle Brownie and like you guys didn't have any accounts or nothing. You just were like, okay, our back's against the walls now. Now we have to make this work. We need yeah. to get this to go. And I don't know if a lot of people get to that level. And if they did get to that level, they would realize how motivating it actually is when yeah. there's nowhere to turn. Yeah, It's just you and you got to make it work. And magic happens in those moments, even though it's probably the most testing period of your life. But it's, to me, I, I always feel like that's the time when the most special things come out of it. Yeah, listen, 100%. Um, building it, and I said it all the time, building building my company was it was the most fun thing I've ever done. It was very, it was very, uh, it was a huge letdown when uh, when we sold. The uh, I've told the story, much, you know, a couple times. Uh, you know, um, uh, Sean Kelly uh, and Josh Wand uh, had a brand builder summit out in the Hamptons in 2018, and I was, you know. Was one of the speakers, I'll say speaker, I was, I was being interviewed. Sean was asking me questions. I don't like to speak at events. I'm just, I don't, I, I just don't want that attention. Um, and so Sean was kind of taking, he was taking people through like my journey. And he said, take me back to 2001 when you sold your company the first time. And I said, one of the worst days of my life. Right. And people were like, whoa, okay. And fast forward to 2007, you get it back. I'm excited. 2017, boom, June 1st, sell the majority at this time. It's a big exit. He said, take me to back to that day. I said, second worst day of my life. And, uh, and I'm being honest about that. Um, I w it, it took me a long time to get over selling my company because it just wasn't, it just wasn't mine anymore. And, and what I loved, it, the, the most fun we had, and, and you and I were talking though, but before we started, um, we were talking about Muscle Farm and having a small team and hitting some pr pretty cool, pretty lofty uh, sales numbers. It's essentially what we did too. We were approaching 100 million in revenue. We had 17 employees. And no investors and no debt. And you think about that for a second. We had an incredible team. We all wore multiple hats. We all managed accounts and things like this, whatever. But we were in the thick of it, and it was just, it was just some of the most fun time uh, to be a part of it. I just wish people wouldn't be so quick to want to have that exit, and rather they build they build their company, build their actual business, and make try to make it profitable before rather than just trying to have all this growth and uh, return uh, return some money to some uh, some investors i totally agree with with everything that you were saying there and super thankful for everything you provided in terms of insights your story everything like that i, I loved us chatting here i think it's going to be um, excellent i think a lot of people are going to get a ton of value from it so just want to give you kind of a round of no, no, applause. Thanks, thanks. Hey, listen, it was uh, following Sam uh, from Good Wipes is really hard. Uh, that dude is <laughs> that dude's fireman, and he's funny and he's sharp. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I I really enjoyed your guys uh, your guys interview. The one thing that I've loved throughout um, all of the different you know, be it founders, co-founders, or, or you know, C-suite executives that I've been interviewing over the last couple of weeks is that after they see one of the prior episodes as I launch, they get super competitive that they want to like make <laughs> it better. And they, they know. So it's it's been funny that every single one has said they've watched the previous ones and yeah. they said, oh, now I need to know that I need to beat that person. So it, it just has to be like, you know, inside of you it, burning. It, 100%. I, I just, like I said, I joke about it. I really, I just, you know, Sam just seems like a really good dude. Like I said, I like uh, I just liked his humor. I thought everything I thought I thought you guys back and forth was uh, was a lot of fun. But listen, we're we're all different. Every, everyone's always everyone's journey is is individual. Everyone everyone's you know journey is different, right? And that's that's the beauty of everything. It's just being able to uh, have your own journey, have your own story. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah. thank you, Barry. I appreciate all the time you gave me. Of course. See you, Josh.
I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have any comments or questions about anything I discussed during it, open the podcast episode notes and click on any of my social media account links to reach out to me directly. 